Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the wonderful world of venture capital, primarily focusing on investing and building consumer technology and physical good-related businesses. If you are a founder currently building a consumer-facing business, I also run a private newsletter where I share a bit of deal flow with folks in my network. Feel free to apply to be featured at consumervc.com slash startup. My guest today is Elizabeth Edwards, the founder and managing partner of H Venture Partners. H Ventures invests in brands that are disrupting billion dollar categories and changing the way we live our lives. She's an early investor in Peloton, Roots, Freshly, just to name a few. Previously, Elizabeth was a partner with Maywick Select Investments and West Ventures. We discussed what makes a brand compelling, the mystery of corporate venture capital, and how to increase diversity in venture and startup ecosystems. Without further ado, here's Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute, absolute pleasure. It really is. Let's start at the beginning. What was your initial attraction to consumer brands? So I started my career as a strategy consultant at Deloitte. And my favorite, absolute favorite project during that time was working on Tylenol. So I was working in the basement of McNeil Pharmaceutical in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, you know, commuting each week, and just found the entire team and the brand and their process fascinating. So in that time, I was interviewing a ton of consumers, so literally like hundreds of individuals all over the country about how they were you know, using Tylenol and other forms of pain management, and then buying what turned out to be an insane amount of data. <laughs> I think we ended up spending like over $50,000 on data tables, ultimately went into this huge database um, that I was building for them. But long story short, the thing that really impressed me about consumer brands, because up until that point, every single project that I worked on was in the medical device and biotech space. And I was going into this project kind of thinking, 
can seem like, okay, you know, Tylenol, uh, whatever, you know, how hard can it be? And it really made an impression on me. It's a field that I think a lot of folks think, oh, consumer is just not that technical. And I mean, in the basement of McNeil, they have an entire shelf of like a CVS or a Walgreens. They're looking at how their packaging stacks up, you know, against other competitors, incumbents, and then new entrants into the space, much, much, much more technical than I had given them credit for being and fell in love and have, you know, I loved it ever since. That's awesome. And it's cool that your founding and originally it was, I mean, Tylenol, that's such an iconic consumer brand in itself and as well as, you know, in the medical world too. That's just really interesting. Okay. So what then initially attracted you to venture capital and founding H Ventures and wanting to be more on the investor side of things? It really goes back to that time with Johnson and Johnson because here I was, you know, I was in strategy consulting, loved it and loved the challenge and the type of work. And what I was finding because I was really part of this strategy team that was more focused on front end M&A work. So we were identifying technologies and companies, startups for J&J to license and acquire. And what I kept finding was the people on the other side of the table, the teams that were bringing these amazing world-changing technologies to life were just so much more interesting. That's really where I wanted to work. And what I realized was in order to work on that side of the table, with the skill set that I had and you know, being able to work across lots and lots of different companies, it was really all about venture capital. And so very early on in my career, and thank goodness I had an MBA in finance, but really early on in my career, I made that shift to venture capital. So I've been a VC now for over 15 years, ever since leaving you know, Deloitte and jumping into early stage investing. And so I started working first for a family office, doing direct investing and investing all over North America in pretty early stages, like seed and series A stage companies. My first investment was actually a food technology company, which is called Blue Wrap. They're still around today, controlled atmosphere technology. But I spent a lot of years as a generalist. So first working with this family office, then working as a corporate VC, so investing balance sheet dollars for Fifth Third Bank. And then finally, about seven years ago, I had the opportunity to join a consumer-focused fund. And it was such a compelling opportunity because there are very few, you know, if you look at the vast majority of venture capital, it's going to non-consumer you know, sectors. And so I was finally able to kind of marry those two loves. And so in that particular fund, we backed Peloton in the Series A. That was the first deal that we did at that fund, which, yeah, hugely validating, right? Yeah, there's something to this whole, like, consumer thing, you know? <laughs> so, and we had a portfolio of 19 companies all pretty early, you know, seed, Series A, Series B, freshly in the Series B, and, um, and they were just acquired by Nestle for $1.5 And so just incredible founders. And I started to notice a couple of different things about the firms that we were investing alongside and the companies that we were investing in. And it really, you know, primarily... I uh, was focused around these key gaps within the consumer venture capital 
uh, marketplace. And that was really, most of our investment partners were like e-commerce, digital marketers. They were really focused on all things digital, but when it came to retail, they did not have as much experience and network or even resources or opinions. And so we had a couple companies that, I would say, I mean, they didn't fail, but they stumbled when they were really looking to make that transition from, you know, totally digital to, okay, now we're going to go be on the shelf at Whole Foods or Target or, or you name it. And I'm here in Cincinnati, Ohio. I mean, consumer and retail is kind of what we do. It's <laughs> the only besides losing football. <laughs> but we, you know, we're the world headquarters for the largest consumer products company in the world and Procter & Gamble and the largest grocer in the U.S. and Kroger, the largest department store, Macy's. We have all these data firms, all these branding folks. And so I have so many of these consumer retail experts that are literally just like neighbors, friends, who I knew would be better advisors to so many of these companies because they did have that background. And so that was really the start of H Venture Partners, which was really more about this experience gap and how to address that. And then the second thing, you know, the firm that I was working with, I would say, obviously, we did a lot things right but there were some key cultural things that I really felt like were also opportunities and one was around female founders so the deal that was kind of like the the deal that broke the camel's back um, if you will I was looking to invest in the series a um, daily harvest which if you can imagine if you're familiar with daily harvest just incredible brand and incredible growth and this would have been such a beautiful bookend of you know our first deal is Peloton in series a our last deal the 20th deal in this portfolio would have been, you know, Daily Harvest. And I could not get the other two gentlemen that I worked with to really get around and get their heads around this deal. And it was such a like soul crushing loss that I literally left the firm that day. <laughs> I just couldn't don't do that. That is not I, I would counsel like every VC out there. That is the worst thing to do do that you know now I know but I just felt really really strongly and so yeah made like a totally emotional uh, business decision I didn't even talk to my husband before I just literally walked out <laughs> so anywho now here we are so Wow. First of all, I mean, that's such a risk, but so amazing how you just decided to walk out because you didn't see quite eye to eye with your other two partners. And you're obviously very, very passionate about investing in women, which of course has become a huge topic in VC over the past year or two. I wanted to also address, you said a number of really interesting points. I love how, I guess what sparked your interest in venture capital was, it seems, your interest in a variety of fields and really like this broad interest rather than focusing on one specific set of interests. When you think about what maybe experience could be helpful for folks that are looking to go into venture capital, I've heard a lot of VCs say you have to have operational experience. Other VCs say you don't. Some come from traditional finance backgrounds. There's no, of course, one way to go into VC, but just based on your experience, if someone does have a broader range of interests, and of course, VC is such a competitive field to go into, but what are some advice that you might have to that person? Yeah, well, such a great question because venture capital is a really, really small field. And I think, you know, recognizing that, you know, early on is really important because former interns now that are, you know, all 
applying for jobs in, in venture capital and just feeling like, oh my God, I'm never going to get a job in venture capital. You know, one of the things that I would counsel people to do is get in there early. The later and later you are in your career, the harder and harder it can be if you don't fit one of those profiles. Like if you founded a company raised venture capital, exited, had a great exit. Those folks tend to be able to find a place, a home. If they want to go into venture capital, a lot of it is they're going to write a pretty big check you know, into those funds. You know, others, uh, you might have a really great angel track record because you've been, you have some unique kind of deal flow. Um, a lot of that I've seen, you know, in, in folks that are later on in their career where they've developed a really great network, really nurtured that network. Maybe they were, you know, one of the first employees at Google or Facebook or PayPal or, or what have you. Then they've been a pretty prolific angel investor where they have their own track record. But for folks that are right now in college, in grad school, you're probably you know, getting an MBA. You know, for those folks, you do want to have some kind of investment background. This is a business where it's all about making an investment return. And so there's kind of the, you know, there's the one piece, which is pattern recognition around great opportunities. And there's the other piece, which is, the fundamentals of valuation and structuring a deal to make a really good financial return. And so having, you know, having that is really important. And I, I see a lot of operators, especially or people that come from companies kind of miss that second piece, which is they feel like, oh, I have a lot of great experience and pattern recognition. And then they kind of get into the deal side and they're like, yeah, the, the lawyers will figure that out. The lawyers are not going to figure that out. You know, that's really at the far, far end of the process. And the other thing that I would say about venture capital, a lot of people think that what we do is like showing up to be on the Shark Tank show every day. And it is so not that. <laughs> I mean, we have really two different customers that we're serving all the time. One is our investors. So first you have to raise the capital in order to deploy it. People always forget about that part of the equation. So, so important. So we're always reporting to our customers it's their money that we're investing in or that we're investing and so it's important to keep that in mind and then the other group which is our portfolio companies our existing portfolio companies and the companies that we're looking to invest in making sure that they're having a great experience and getting everything they need and the companies that you know 99 percent of them are going to say no to but still doing that in a good value-add way it's a lot of work no, that's really helpful. I mean, thanks as well for painting a picture in terms of what the day-to-day -day life is as a VC. Another thing that I think that you said was very interesting, I know you're based in Cincinnati. Of course, getting, you know, retail is the bread and butter of Cincinnati. I know it's also losing in football. I'm from Washington, D.C. We're also really good at losing in football. And so we certainly have some commonality there. But when it comes to retail, and you did speak about how some of the investments that you made, I think early on in your career, you see these DNVBs that just weren't quite able to make that transition into retail. What were some of the reasons why they weren't able to? And when you do invest in DNVBs, in the back of your mind, maybe, what are some of the things that you think about whether this would be successful on the shelf? Yes. Oh, such a great one. So two examples, you know, one former portfolio company, a food brand, had a great digital presence, great audience, and they were looking to and did launch in Whole Foods and Target. And some of the things that work from a digital perspective that, you know, like, oh my God, this packaging is just 
so beautiful on Instagram, but then when you put it on the shelf, it's just kind of lost, right? So in this case, I will say that this company, this is a brand that I like to say, it's, it looks like food that you would buy at the Apple store. It's beautifully packaged, but the packaging is almost so minimalist as to be lost on the retail shelf, especially when we're talking about and Whole Foods. So, you know, I'm not going to like quote the art of war or something like that. But what I will say is like, if you're going to fight a battle in a different theater, you need to bring different weapons. And so from what this company was doing really successfully on Instagram and where they're showing their actual product, um, you know, unpackaged and all of this stuff, and it was really playing well, you're not able to do those things on the retail shelf. And so they really needed to think about their product mix, the packaging for that, and how they were going to compete against the other brands in that theater. So in this case, they had a protein powder that came in, you know, vanilla and chocolate. And they were going into Target up against Vega, which had 15 SKUs. You know, it was like, five wide, three deep. And then here you saw these like two little beautiful Apple store canisters. And so they weren't really thinking about competition in that theater. And then the other, this is a company that had a really, really great subscription model. So you can have Soma. And I I have one in my office here, the best water filter that you can buy, period. Most sustainable. I mean, you can literally like compost every single part of this thing. And so this is a company that had built a really, really nice business purely online. And then when they went to Target, to pitch to Target, they were really putting forth a brand new business model for Target. This is before the days of subscribe and save. And so today, if I were investing in that company today, and their target pitch was coming up, I would have them talking to Mary Pickering you know, from Sympactful like every day leading up to that pitch to make sure that they're thinking about things from the category manager's perspective, that they've got the deal, and that, you know, all of targets thinking and perspective embedded up front in that presentation in order to make sure that they're going on with their best foot forward. But then there's a lot of work to do then even once you're on the shelf, right? Making sure that your product is set up right, that's in every store, that the promotions are out there, that they're priced right. So there's so, so many things about the retail theater that are just completely different from you know, selling direct to consumer. And you really need the talent, you need the, you know, the experience around the table to help you navigate those. First of all, love that answer. That's so helpful. I mean, like to me, it's really helpful to my learnings. I'm sure it's helpful to folks that are listening as well. Is there ever a moment where you see like a brand that works online that does really well online that you think in your, I think, first example about maybe it's a very simplistic, minimalist branding that you just think, all right, that's, I'm just naming one example that that's not going to work in retail. Do you ever think this brand in order to work in retail is going to change their entire brand, how they're doing online, even though online they might be performing very, very well because the packaging that maybe they need to do in for retail won't work. Do you ever come across that? All the time, all the time. So packaging adjustments, you know, in some cases, you know, secondary packaging, like you have to think of things like tamper-proof seals or secondary packaging, um, even information that is required on the label of that product that may not be required, you know, when you're selling strictly direct to consumer. But the big things about, you know, you may have gaps 
in even your offering right now, going into retail that you don't necessarily think of when you're selling just direct to consumer. So if you have a skincare line, when you're pitching that line to, you know, Target or a Walmart, um, and you're looking at your competitors, if your competitors, if the minimum viable set is this like five piece set that has, you know, X, Y, Z and A, B and C, and you only have A, B, and C, you just take like, why does that matter? And really work with those categories because the category managers have a ton of data. They know their, you may know your customer on Instagram and Facebook, TikTok, but you don't necessarily know the target shopper. And so those audiences may be different, need different things. Think about pricing very differently. Right? Because when you're shopping on Instagram, you're not looking at you know 20 of your competitors all at the same time. When you arrive at the show, you are. First of all, that's a great analogy in terms of the differences between you know the target shopper that you get or you understand in retail versus almost like on an individual basis, knowing just the end consumer on Instagram, where it seems like if you know your target shopper, that actually is like a larger demographic because it's actually a proper demographic, if that makes sense. Where online is one-on-one. So in a funny way, it's much tougher to scale that, right? Because it's not a specific profile per se of a consumer. Got it. That's really helpful. So when you're valuing opportunities, are you most, and especially on the brand side of things, do you look at brands as well that might already be in Target, might already have be in Whole Foods and maybe don't have that digital presence, just kind of going the opposite way? Do you ever find that brands that you don't think will actually work online, for example. Absolutely. And definitely in the food world, there are so, so many of these because I'm thinking of a plant-based butter, you know, that we just looked at. So that's something that you're not going to buy plant-based butter on Instagram. It's going to melt <laughs> before it gets to you. It doesn't make sense to buy $75 worth of that and, you know, have it shipped to your home. And when you think about the consumer landscape, food is the biggest category. That's where we spend you know, more money than any other category. Not, you know, hair care, skin care, of course. So food and beverage are massive. And I would say the vast majority of brands in those categories are brands that Hey, you know, I don't, I don't even care if you even don't have, you know, an Instagram account. It may be that your brand is just perfectly positioned for that whole food shopper or that target shopper. They're meeting an unmet need. They're well differentiated and you've got a, you know, a pretty good cam. That retail shopper, you know, this is the person that is putting together a basket of goods. So they're, yeah, they're buying their plant-based butter and they might buy their, you know, kettle chips made in avocado oil right over here and their coconut-based ice cream, whatever it might be, but they're throwing all that stuff into the grocery cart for that, you know, $200 grocery order. And so we absolutely look at those brands. So I know you mentioned that you worked in both corporate venture capital and now you have, of course, your own fund and quote unquote normal venture capital per se. I know like corporate venture capital sometimes gets thrown around as a bit of a dirty word and that the alignment might not actually be there with the founder. I would love to just hear in terms of consumer, especially in CPG, how do you think about corporate venture capital versus, you know, normal venture capital per se? Yeah, I think, you know, corporate venture capital has grown up and changed time, even from the time that, that I was actively investing, you know, with the balance sheet money of, of Fifth Third. 
In that case, you know, we're kind of an interesting investor at Fifth Third because we were not taking any special terms. And at that time, I would say a lot of corporate VPs, they were looking for you know, like a right of first refusal or just, you know, more controls. And we work with a lot of corporate venture capital investors today that are investing in the consumer space. I think they're filling a gap. Look, in my opinion, we should have like 10 times the amount of capital going to consumer that we have today. And so the fact that Unilever Ventures and you see like Kellogg and General Mills, all of these companies, super active in direct deals and funds, it's great because you know, the vast majority of the corporate venture capital investors that I talk to today are not taking any special terms. They're not looking for that right of first refusal. Instead, they are actually providing key expertise, not too dissimilar from what we do because we have at this point, over 50 executives from all the major consumer and retail companies. So you think, you know, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, you know, Kroger, Macy's, Target, Ulta, Bloomingdale's, SD Johnson, Johnson Johnson, all of these companies, these C-level executives have invested in our fund and they're providing real network expertise introduction. And that's actually what I find most of the corporate venture capital investors are doing too. They're actually putting some of those Federal Mills people you know, on your team or, or giving them up as resources to say, hey, if you want to chat about shopper marketing at Albertsons, we're here for you. You can talk to so-and-so. And so I think that's really valuable for new brands, especially getting some of the consumer insight, just getting some of those resources. That's what we do. That's what most of these guys are doing. I would say if you're looking at a right of first refusal, you need to walk away. That's not you know, for the vast majority of companies, 99%, that's not going to be the right deal. But look at like Beyond Meat. Beyond Meat took lots of strategic capital from you know, Tyson. I think General Mills is in that one too. So, you know, it did not slow them down. You know, they went all the way. You know, the IPO, they were not acquired by a strategic acquirer. But I think it tells a really good story, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I appreciate that example with Beyond Meat. Yeah. What I really appreciate about your fund as well, it seems almost like a stepping stone in some ways in that, you know, you are backed by some of the biggest executives at, you know, these Fortune 500 incredible consumer brands. So it's almost like a stepping stone and that you have the best of both worlds, which is really cool. And so walk me through a little bit. I'd love to learn about your due diligence process when you are evaluating consumer brands. Well, and I will say we just did two different webinars, Venture Capital 101, Venture Capital 201. We actually also just did a Consumer Trends webinar. So if you go to our website, www.h.ventures, you'll see our video library there of exactly this. Like how can we decide which companies to invest in? It really comes down to a scorecard that I've used for over 10 years now. You know, this is back in my fifth or days where our investment memos were literally 70 pages long. There were books and the CFO of the bank would sign off on every meal we did. But we had to have a really robust process for selecting investments. And it made us better investors. I mean, we in that portfolio, no losses you know, so far, which is amazing. We have, we have the scorecard that's a 10-point scorecard. Management team and the brand, how that brand is differentiating the marketplace, are the biggest drivers 
of that scorecard. So it's weighted. But we're also looking at things like scalability, barriers to entry. So do you have real moats around this technology? And we're also looking at the investors around the table, existing and new investors, look at deal terms, capital efficiency. So we really focus most of our time on the team and the brand, but all of these things go into the weight, you know, the scorecard. So typically, you know, we will reach out to companies based on our thesis, but we get, because, you know, consumer venture capital investor, we get a ton of inbound, you know, deal flow from other founders, other VCs who have, you know, things that they're pitching, but generally we'll go a category at a time and really go deep within a category to look for like, what is new in pet? What is new in hair care? You know, what are some of the unmet needs in that category where we want to invest? And Typically, you know, we'll talk to 100 to 400 companies in a particular category, and these calls are generally about 30 minutes long. So we try and get through most of the things on that scorecard in that first 30 minutes. At that point, we know, like, are we going to be really focusing some time and energy around this or not? And if we do, if we do go deep where we're, like, getting into the data room and putting a memo together, then that eventually goes to our investment committee. So, again, pretty formal process where we have some of those same C-suite executives and then, you know, all of us on the investment team around the table voting on that opportunity. So, end-to-end, you know, it can take as little as a week if we totally totally focus on that opportunity and that alone, or it can take us several weeks, if not months. I mean, there are some companies where from the first conversation that we have with them until their round is totally closed with all the other investors that are joining the round, that can be a three to six month process. I hate to say it, but that's what we're doing. We tend to track companies for a long time. So maybe we reached out to them. They weren't even raising a round. But and now they're getting stuff together and the rounds coming So you together. focus on it, categories yeah, at different times. times. And so would you say that you're a bit like thematic driven and that you might be focusing on a specific category and then try to identify the entrepreneurs or the, or the businesses that are really are being innovative and really uh, solving that perceived customer need that you think is there? Is that kind of right in terms of how you're thinking about it? Yeah, and I would say that's a, that's a good half of our portfolio is that thematic. And because we're so active in the marketplace, that the other half of that portfolio is opportunistic because, look, you know, maybe we haven't looked at hair care for a good six months, but we just did, you know, six months ago we did. And then we'll see another opportunity and go, wow, you know what? This one, they really have something. Because in the vast majority of cases, we've already done quite a bit of work in that category. We'll cycle through those categories every few months. So, you know, we'll look at pet and hair care, you know, we'll look at food and baby care, right? So we may not necessarily be going deep on your category when you call, but that doesn't mean that That's we won't good. To know. That's good to know. Around. And something else I want to talk about too, I know you mentioned it early on in our conversation, but the numbers are pretty abysmal when it comes to the amount of area, of course, that you're very passionate about, about the number of female founders that get investment from. What as an industry 
you think needs to happen or major strides in order for because i mean especially in consumer right i mean it's actually kind of wild that it's so male dominated in consumer since i believe there was a study that like 80 percent of purchase decisions were by like the female member of the household um, i could be wrong about that but it's something staggering like that so i'm just more like curious i mean i'm sure that you know all the numbers as well but and far more than me but what are some things that you think need to change in venture capital in order to make it more inclusive to women yeah, I think it is, and I was, you know, as a young person, not really as aware of this. What I what I was aware of as a young female VC was that the venture capital industry was nothing like the consulting industry that I just came from, where I was consulting with Fortune 500 companies. And for the vast majority of the people that I was working with, I would consider them to be very professional, you know, woke, <laughs> I guess, um, you know, people that had a, a good sense of what is federally legal versus illegal when it comes to HR. And, and that is not the case with the venture capital industry, unfortunately. So from a very young age, I, I was aware that, oh my God, you know, this industry has so much work to do from an HR perspective, because basically the venture capital industry is made up of closely held small businesses where a lot of wealth is created in a short amount of time. They tend to be very personality driven, even to some degree more so than results driven. And so you have these, in some cases, you know, megalomaniacs that are running businesses where they don't report to anybody. You know, they're kind of, I would say they're not very sensitive when it comes to female and, and diverse employees. And so, yeah, the industry has a lot of work to do. I think on one, the HR side, because they're small businesses, one thing you may not be aware of, you know, family leave in this country is not that great to begin with. But when you're working with a small business, so a business that has under 50 employees, there are basically like no rules around maternity leave or family leave or any of that which makes it really hard, especially for women kind of at that midpoint in their career where they're hitting their 30s, they're having kids. So they're not, you know, right out, they're not analysts. They're not right out of school. They're making good money, but not necessarily creating the kind of wealth that's going to enable them to personally just take a year off, right? And so I think from that perspective, you know, if you look at the companies we back, the companies we back have better family leave policies than the firms that we work with. That's point number one. Point number two, 99% of capital is controlled by white men, 99% of the capital. And so from a consumer's perspective, I was like, 99% of the shoppers are not white men. <laughs> so Obviously, you know, a, a disconnect there. I definitely felt that, you know, with my daily harvest experience. In consumer, I think it's 85% of consumer purchases are made by women. But what we find at our, at our firm, when we're looking at the stats, over half of the founders in consumer are women because they're starting food brands, beverage brands, apparel brands, beauty brands, baby care, feminine care, home care, all the cares. So not surprising that you find female and diverse teams. And 
I think the only way that the industry is truly going to change, and it will take, you know, another 20, 50 years, because in our industry, the startup funds really don't get going for a good 10 years. It takes a long time for us to show the kind of returns, results that big allocators like pension funds and others are going to get behind and then go, oh, great, you know, I'm going to invest $100 million in your next fund. That's really where you're going to start to see the change. But right now, the great news is we have more female-founded funds, you know, this year and last year than ever before. There's a huge crop of new women coming into the marketplace, former founders, you know, VCs that have worked for big firms but did not like the experience, um, or just women who are chasing a new opportunity. So over the next 10 years, we're going to put a bunch of points on the board. We're going to raise billions okay, of dollars. You made a number then, of amazing points. Change. One that I think as well I'd like to add to, and we'd love to get your feedback on this, but when you talk about women that might be you know, approaching 30, about to maybe start having families that aren't maybe partners at the firm yet, but they aren't the analysts, I think another thing as well, who of course, as you mentioned, it make them good money, but they don't have the ability just to take off a year. But also what I see as well as part of a challenge too is convincing the partners that, okay, this lady is now starting a family. Maybe that lady doesn't actually get the promotion, right? And that side of things. So you actually then have like a glass ceiling, which is terrible, you know? And so I think that's also, you know, really, really awful um, and terrible about the business. And uh, I do agree with you that in terms of real change to happen, it really has to start from the top. It has to start with the pension funds. It has to start from uh, the LPs that um, are investing in funds because that's the only way things can change. And so, yeah, I think that all makes a lot of sense in terms of what change that we need to happen. And it's great to be talking with you, someone who's really has been a huge advocate of this and also leading the change. So this is great. And one thing I would add to, it's not just pension funds, because when I look at the $70 trillion under management, we as Main Street investors can also have an impact on this. If you're looking at smaller funds, like the $10 and $20 million funds of women who are starting firms, generally speaking, you as an individual, if you've got $50,000 to invest, you can invest in those funds. That's something that you can do. The other thing is to bug your financial advisor. If you're with Fidelity, or Merrill Lynch or UBS, and you're not asking the question, hey, what percentage of my money is managed by female or diverse managers? I'm talking like mutual funds, hedge funds, real estate funds, energy funds, venture capital, private equity. If you're not asking that question, they think you don't care. And the crazy, the crazy, crazy math, those funds that are managed by female and diverse managers are more likely to be top performers. There's been a ton of research done. And so like, you're literally, just by not asking the question, you're probably not even getting the kind of financial return that you could be because you're only looking at, you know, investing yeah, with- Yeah, that's a great point. Really, that the customer to all of these institutions can actually drive the change as well, right? I mean, another good point too, is that it's then such a huge opportunity, right? Since not a lot of people are investing in women, but the studies have shown that diverse teams and investing in underrepresented folks, that they actually typically form a lot better. For example, like one of the things I think about is Stitch Fix. I read that Katrina like couldn't raise at one point because she was a woman and, and there was that kind of glass ceiling there. And so they had to become 
profitable than they became profitable within like three years, which is insane given the amount of technological advancement they did. And, you know, they obviously took it all the way in IPO and they're doing great. But like, that's just one example that just, it's crazy to think about. So I'll be honest, you're the first investor out of Cincinnati that I've interviewed. Do you have any advice for founders and companies that might be located in secondary and tertiary markets that are trying to raise? Absolutely. So, you know, I think if you are in San Francisco and you're raising capital, congratulations, you're in a market that's probably the easiest market to find capital because 75% of the world's venture capital is based there. It's just going to be easier to get a meeting, you know, whether it's down in you know, Menlo Park or if it's up in the city, that's where most of, of the VCs are. New York, Boston are also great markets. So when you're in secondary and tertiary markets, I think one thing that I've noticed a lot of entrepreneurs really fail to do is they don't fundraise outside of their home market. They don't go very far. And that is to their detriment because when you're in San Francisco, you're pitching to like every single VC that'll take a meeting with you, right? And the same is true of, of Cincinnati or St. Louis or Chicago. Only problem is that list is a lot smaller and you're going to pitch to a hundred investors in order to raise your round. You just will. Um, I got it. And they're sort of like laws of nature. And, and that's one of them. You're just, it's not like you're going to pitch to five investors and just, you know, wrap it up and be done with it. You're going to get like 95 no's. And so you got to go outside your market, go to where the venture capital is. I'm not saying you have to move your company there. You just have to go fundraise where the funds are. Thank goodness right now, you can be on Zoom and you're no more disadvantaged to being in the Berkshires or, or in Peoria as you know, being right down the street and so much. So it's actually, I think, a, a blessing you know, for a lot of VCs and, and uh, companies. On that point, given the sure. times we live in, has it been harder for you to establish conviction with founders since you're having to meet with them remotely? No, and that I think is, is probably unique to folks like me and, you know, like others that do invest, you know, out of these smaller markets. So I've been a VC for 15 years, investing all over North America. Most of my, you know, work was conference calls. And so I had to get conviction around people that I wasn't even seeing. And then maybe I would take a plane ride and maybe I would go see them. But I've literally made investments and in people I've never laid eyes on. I'm just, so the entire, if I think about you know, my previous firm, I didn't see Rachel Dory. I'm talking to her on the phone. I, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to, you know, Michael Wiscrack from Freshly. So this has actually been an upgrade for me. I will say that, you know, for the course of the years, I have gotten on airplanes a lot more, you know, further along in the due diligence process because, you know, things you learn. I found that it is important to see that manufacturing facility and really know how they're making this stuff, their quality control checks, all of that. So I really value that. We still are able to do that remotely. So we've literally had like video tours of manufacturing plants. So there are ways to get around it. And I don't think that COVID has presented any challenges, you know, for us. That's great. That's really great to hear. I've heard it both ways on this. So it's really great to hear that for you, it's no problem. It's what you've been doing for 15 years. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? 
So one that I would say, you know, both criteria, but you know, really more on the personal side is Leslie Blodgett's book, Pretty Good Advice. So Leslie Blodgett is the founder of Bare Minerals, incredible book. And the reason it personally inspired me, I'm a three on the Enneagram. And so, you know, this high achiever kind of personality, there was something that she said in the book that I just thought was so good. She said, what do you think it is? Do you think that high achievers set really big goals or smaller, more manageable goals? And I'm thinking, oh, well, it's obviously, you know, high achievers set big goals. And she said, it's actually the opposite because they love to achieve things and cross things off the list. And so that was personally a paradigm that I really, really needed to understand, especially in leading teams. Because sometimes when you're a big goal setter, you know, like a John Foley who says, you know, back in 2014, I'm going to start a $10 billion company. You know, it can be pretty demoralizing when for the first, you know, few years, you don't have any revenue and you're no closer, you know, to your goal than you were last year. So it's really, really important to put those goals in context. I think that's what she, you know, she did really well. Then the other book, just professionally, was really inspiring to me was actually Ray Dalio's Principles. Ray Dalio is the founder of uh, Bridgewater, which is one of the most successful, and I think it is the most successful hedge fund in history. And he starts, uh, this is really a memoir and a guide for, you know, really principles that he's developed over his career in evaluating investments, managing teams, all these things. And the thing that really inspired me about that book, he talks about starting a fund and how awful and difficult it was, and then how he failed miserably at one point and basically like lost all of his money. And so I, I think you know stories like that are so great to read because what you realize is that even people that are at the top of their game and just you know, paragons of industry have big failures. And it wasn't all, you know, a yellow brick road, you know, to, to get to where they are. They had a lot of challenges. Steve Short, I'm reading Steve Short's memoir right now too. Same thing, you know, <laughs> Blackstone was not, you know, a runaway success <laughs> you know, at the beginning. So yeah, really, uh, really No, great those are excellent. I haven't context. heard of Leslie's book, Pretty Good Advice. So I'm really excited to add that to the reading list. It sounds like I'm going to be putting it on my reading list too. It sounds really, really cool. And I mean, Principles is great. I'm actually currently listening to it on, on audiobook, but it's such a great book. I also love how Ray just like narrates the whole thing. It's really, really excellent. He really breaks you know, it's, my husband's actually also a big fan of the yes, audiobook. So what's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? Yeah, so our most recent investment was in a company called Parsley Health. Parsley is based in New York. Robin Burson, the founder, is a physician. And this was a Series B round that we invested in right before COVID. We have now three more investments that are all in term sheets. So knock on wood that all of them close before the end of the year. But Parsley, the thing that I love about their approach, they have a holistic approach 
approach to health. And the thing that really got us over, over the goal line with them, we really stay true to our focus on tangible consumer products. And we're looking at this company, oh man, you know, we really love this company, but it's telehealth, you know, is it really a consumer? And they have an amazing line of supplements and actually a, a good amount of revenue from those. So these are doctor developed, they're manufactured in USP grade facilities. So great line of supplements. What they've been able to do is get people off of sort of chronic medication that's not working for them. So if you think of folks that are dealing with everything from, you know, Crohn's disease to diabetes and chronic pain and all sorts of different maladies where they might be spending just so much money on these drugs that have terrible side effects, aren't really working. What Parsley does, they focus on really figuring out what's going on with you, so diagnosis, and then putting together a plan that may include, you know, changing your behavior, changing your diet, exercise, sleep. So they've been able to solve a lot of huge, huge, huge healthcare issues, not with prescriptions, but just through like better diagnosis and coaching. So that was one that I could really get behind that's and, awesome. Yeah, That's awesome. Sounds really, really cool. I'll have to check them out. I didn't know about them before. And so my last question that I have is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Mm, one piece of advice for founders before you launch, get as much consumer insight as you can. Oh my gosh. If I had to think of the number of companies and the amount of capital, you know, that's just been wasted because we didn't really, really understand the problem that the consumer is trying to solve or the competitive landscape, even how people were really thinking about the various options. Consumer insight, first and foremost, I will say on the companies that have done really well for us, for me, over the course of my career, the folks that have in the best data and the best insight, understanding, empathy, and really just like focus. If you're focused on your customer and just making their life better, and that being, you know, first and foremost, you're just, you're set up for success. No, those are all great pieces of advice. I think, you know, being customer centric, it's almost now like table stakes, it seems, uh, to do it. You just have to be obsessive about your customer. And I agree in terms of testing and trying to gather as many consumer insights that you possibly can. I mean, that's extremely important before you go in and you put all your money or raise capital or by whatever means. And also, maybe more importantly, wasting your time too. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Great to catch up. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Elizabeth on the show. You can follow her at E Edwards on Twitter. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.